Hello and welcome to this session of FortiWire Live. I'm Douglas Santos. I'm the director of Advanced Threat Intelligence in Fortinet's FortiWire Labs. And I'm here today with Mike Cunningham, R&D Program Manager at the Center for Threat from Defense. Thank you for being here today, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me, Douglas. All right. So today, uh, I want to talk to you about a few things, mainly the global threat landscape and the importance of threat intelligence, right? But before we dive into the specifics of the research that organizations like FortiGuard and MITRE are doing, let's talk about the importance of threat intelligence. So I'd like to know from you, Mike, can you give me a brief overview of your role in the center and your approach and the center's approach to threat intelligence and research? Yeah, certainly. Um, so I'm the R&D program manager, as you mentioned, which means I oversee all the execution of our research and development projects in the center. Mm -hmm. um, we look at threat intelligence as a critical component of all the work that we do. Um, we have what we call the threat informed defense triad, um, which we as an organization use to practice threat informed defense. Um, and there's three components of that, which are cyber threat intelligence, defensive measures and test and evaluation. And these mm -hmm. concepts have um, like a cyclical relationship where CTI informs our defensive measures mm -hmm. and those defensive measures are then tested and evaluated, um, the results of which feeds back into our threat intelligence, starting the cycle all over. Um, so if we pull out threat intelligence from our triad, then the entire cycle just falls apart. Um, and as a research program, we think about the practitioners in each of these domains and you know how can we create something that will make their jobs easier um, and we're not necessarily a consumer or producer of threat intelligence, but our team has experts that have served in those roles. And so as we build these tools, um, we look, how can we serve this community to make their jobs easier? And once we're done creating a product, we like hand it off to teams like FortiGuard Labs, um, where you guys can do the hard work of actually catching the adversary. Yeah, thank you for the, for the insight. It's, uh, I mean, the work we've been doing in FortiGuard is, somewhat similar but we're we're knee deep into threat intelligence right so we have this vast array of sensors which are collecting the threat intelligence that needs to go through needs to be first organized on the frameworks that you guys are developing and are constantly updating and when it when it's being expressed through those specific frameworks it gets easier for defenders to actually use, reuse, and replicate those behaviors so they can test their defensive controls, right? So it all comes together, and uh, the work that the center is doing, it's extremely valuable for both Fortinet, so we can understand how better to express our trend intelligence and organize all of the disparate sources of information that we're uh, processing on a daily basis, as well as our customers, which now has like a clear path on how to operationalize that threat intelligence. Yeah, well, and that's uh, a great um, point. Is the, oper the operationalizing of the intelligence is something that's critical and something that we really strive to, to achieve and allow our uh, consumers to get to as well. Amazing, yeah. It's so important, yeah. Most, uh, most defenders need to understand the crucial role that not only, I mean, people talk a lot about threat intelligence, but there are different types of threat intelligence. And here at FortiGuard, we're, we're heavy on trying to provide what, what we're calling tailored threat intelligence to our customers, right? So understanding the threats that are targeting that specific customer, so we can dive deep and extract that operational intelligence and replicate it because 
all the intelligence that's being detected by specific security controls are the, are the threats that are exactly that, the threats that are being detected, but some threat might have slipped through the cracks. So if it does slip, it will behave somewhat similar to those threats that have already been categorized and detected, right? So you, you closing that loop is the most powerful thing you can do. I wanna talk a little bit about the Fargoard Labs Global Threat Landscape Report. So we have an ongoing relationship uh, between your guys, the center and Fortinet, and the collaboration spans in multiple areas, right? So for example, uh, Mitre Attack is being used to express uh, the attacks in our most recent Global Threat Landscape Report. I would like you to take your view on what this framework is about and the impact for the cybersecurity community, the Mitre Attack Framework by itself. Yeah, so at its core, um, attack is just a knowledge base of adversarial behavior. And previous work done to track adversaries focused on the tools they use or the malware, um, which didn't tell the whole picture. And so mm -hmm. tools and malware, they can change often. Adversaries, you know, throw tools away and they build new tools. And so we wanted to create a common lexicon to describe the behaviors that the adversaries were actually doing with those tools. Um, so if I describe something like password theft, for instance, you might not be sure if the passwords were stolen from memory, um, from disk, or if it was key logging. Um, but now that we've created this common lexicon, we'll be thinking and speaking from the same starting place. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, attack is broken down into um, tactics and techniques. Mm -hmm. The tactic is uh, the why of what an adversary is doing, and then the technique is how they were doing it. So if we stick with uh, the password example, uh, the tactic would be credential access and the technique would be LSAS memory access. Mm -hmm. And the reason we look at these behaviors is because uh, that's much more difficult for an adversary to change than a specific tool or an IP address. Mm -hmm. And so the attack knowledge base has been proven to be incredibly valuable um, in tracking and describing how adversaries move about our networks. And then tying it back to the work that you guys are doing, it's been great to see how the community has adopted attacks since it kicked mm -hmm. off um, years back. Um, especially with Fortinet and your guys' Global Threat Landscape Report. Um, it's a perfect example of how organizations can use attack and to help um, our defenders you know, take what we have in this lexicon and apply it uh, to their defenses. And one thing that caught my eye on you guys' report was the global attack heat map, mm -hmm. um, where you broke down the top 10 most detected techniques yeah. for each tactic. And that's a great place for defenders to start if they're uncertain of which techniques might be important to them and they should mm -hmm. put their attention on first. Yeah, yeah. The way the way I see it's 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 good that you talked about because the, how how attack came along to be what it is and why it needed to be developed. But it's still not the the end goal, right? It's not a silver bullet because the standard keeps evolving as new attacks are understand and understood and uh, structured into the attack language. But are we we are about on five hundred techniques and growing, right? And yeah, each, over 500. And each technique can be proceduralized in many different ways, right? So the the idea of the heat map is to further prioritize something that is already high level, right? So you, you can say, uh, if you are really deep into trying to understand uh, breach detection simulation technologies, trying to do a threat hunting and threat emulation, where where should we start right and which techniques should you focus first well there's here's what we're seeing on the wild so it's better that we you prioritize this because if you are if you're running these specific techniques 
through your detection technology, through your security tooling, and you can understand specifically where you stand on each technique, then you have a plan of action, right? So for this technique, I can only detect, but I cannot mitigate. And that's because of a feature set that's missing our security tooling, or that's because just the configuration, right? So what do we want to do with this? Are we accepting those this risk? Are we reviewing with? So it's just a clear path forward so that our customers and everyone in the security industry can understand what we are seeing mapped to the attack framework, prioritize so they can take action, right? Absolutely. And if you can't mitigate against a certain technique and was only seen in less than 1% of attacks, mm -hmm. do you need to spend your time and resources focusing on that technique or should you go to a, a more commonly seen one? Exactly, yeah. yeah. So talking about uh, one of the projects, one of the many projects that we've worked together with the center, so Attack Workbench 2, right? So uh, I would like to get your take on what was the focus of this project and what are some of the major takeaways for the threat intelligence community as a whole? Yeah, um, well, I think it's pretty well known that one of the uh, favorite tools among security teams is a spreadsheet, um, for better or worse. <laughs> yeah. And these to, to like store local knowledge or to build workflows. You get really complex macros in there that could break easily. A new version gets forked off somewhere else. And it just becomes unmanageable. Uh, we've seen organizations try to do this with the attack matrix. So the attack puts out a CSV, you can have a spreadsheet of it. Um, but the problem is, is the attack updates, which it has updates twice a year, you quickly fall behind um, that knowledge base. And so trying to update it and sync it with your version uh, becomes increasingly difficult. Mm -hmm. so we built attack workbench as a better solution to this. Uh, and workbench allows security teams to combine their local knowledge of threats with the attack knowledge base, um, mm -hmm. all hosted within an easily deployed Docker container. Um, and so you can have your closed source local intel that you don't want to share out with the public, along with all the public knowledge that comes with the attack knowledge base. Um, mm -hmm. And so we also built Workbench with collaboration in mind. Um, so it supports single sign-on, it supports different user roles. Um, you can add notes and tag teammates so they can see what you've been working on and what they need to put their attention on. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just serves this awesome way to extend attack um, from what is publicly available. Mm -hmm. And then also the attack team, but in fact, they use Workbench as they're planning out their releases as well um, before they go public with it. So it's, yeah. it's operational already, it's proven that it works and it's something that can be easily deployed um, with anyone's mm -hmm. network. Yeah, and I mean, this is one of my favorite projects because it's helping me break down silos within Fortinet. If you, I, I guess this is the tr this is true for many cybersecurity vendors because they have different products with different teams trying to solve customer challenges when it comes to bugs, new feature requests, you know, and uh, it's it's hard for them to share a common language when trying to add detection, right? So Forty Sandbox will do their own thing, EDR will do their own thing. Most of the times, they have to have researchers and reverse engineers in each team to make sure that they can. I implement that specific problem and specific detection analytic and in that specific um, product. So Workbench is allowing me to break down those silos and have all the reverses from all teams working together to tag specific product managers so they can say, hey, I've analyzed this specific malware. These are the DDPs. But when I run on a specific detection technology, it's it's getting like half of these DDPs. And this is how I'm I'm, I'm I'm coming along with them. Uh, this is what I see when I do reversing, right? So it provides like uh, a frictionless way 
from a frictionless um, conduit, like from, from the reverser all the way to the developer that's actually working on developing an analytic. It's, it's one of my favorite things ever. I, I really appreciate it. That's awesome. So, <laughs> so I want to talk about the last project we've worked together, which is Summiting the Pyramid. So again, please give me your take about what was the approach to this research? Were there any surprising findings? And how did you collaborate with other industry stakeholders throughout this process? Sure. Um, well, as you just mentioned earlier, there's many different procedures that an adversary can take for a specific attack technique. Um, and this creates difficulties when you're writing detection analytics. Um, mm -hmm. So if a, if a bad guy is using Mimikatz, which is a commonly known password stealer, mm -hmm. um, they're going to want to access LSAS memory. And so we can write a detection analytic that alerts on the hash of Mimikatz. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can tag that with LSAS memory attack technique. And then we say we have coverage for that technique. Mm -hmm. um, but if you guys are familiar with David Bianco's Pyramid of Pain, mm -hmm. uh, that showed us that hashes are trivial to change. Mm -hmm. And so the analytic won't be very useful as soon as the adversary updates the hash on that file. We will no longer get detections alerts for it. Um, so the Summoning the Pyramid Project solves this issue by creating a methodology to score an analytic based on robustness. Um, mm -hmm. Robustness is a term that we created, which means the effort needed by an adversary to evade an analytic. And that gets broken down into two factors, which would be like the observable the observables um, on the system that a, a behavior leaves behind, and then mm -hmm. also the sensor from which that data came from. Mm -hmm. um, and in this case, the sensor could be Sysmon, Windows Event Log, um, anything like that. And so when you use our methodology to score an analytic, um, you can take steps to then improve the analytic. Yes. So if we go back to the Mimikatz example, um, mm -hmm. creating the signature based off the hash, uh, that's not very useful. Yes. Um, but if we replace the hash with a more robust observable, such as original file name, which mm -hmm. is that something that's embedded in the binary, mm -hmm. and it's much more difficult to change, we can start to see some improvements with their analytics. Um, and then we can start to have better detections and better alerts. Yeah, that, that's, that's my sec second favorite <laughs> project with you guys. And just because, you know, most, most teams will develop an analytic and will never touch it unless it's actually failing. But mm -hmm. when it's failing, it's already too late, right? So the, this framework and this methodology to actually score all analytics of a given product, it's something that is, it has like such enormous value that is, is even hard to measure, right? So having that, uh, having, having the ability to participate on the development of that, I'm pretty sure our NDR team was heavily involved on, on the project from start to finish and from from what I could heard from the those guys in NDR, just the project itself being involved on the on the thought process, on the design, and understanding what was the approach to developing that methodology was uh, was from a, uh, of enormous value from them. So, and uh, yeah, thank you so much, uh, Mike. It was uh, very uh, very valuable, I guess, from our viewers and for myself. It's always a pleasure to to talk to you. I would like to thank CTID and the viewers for their times. And uh, I would like to invite everyone to check out the work that MITRE is doing. So MITRE Center for Attending from Defense and check out our threat landscape report, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, guys.